We are in our study of the book of Ephesians. For those of us who are here for the first time, we are an expository preaching church. We preach verse by verse and sometimes word by word. We are right now in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. And as we go through 20 to 24, I really need to take some time today to go back in through verses 17 through 19. The title of the sermon was Turning From and Turning To. Last week was Turning From, Turning From and Turning To, Part 1. We looked at Turning From. That was verses 17 through 19. And this week, we'll be looking at Turning To, found in verses 20 through 24. Last week, we looked at the condition of the unbeliever in verse 17, which says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We saw that the unbeliever walks in futility, that thinking is futile. They're chasing after soap bubbles. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 3 reads, Among whom we all once lived in the lusts and the passions, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. The unbeliever just carries out the desires of the body and of the mind. Why? Because they reject the truth that is found in God's word. And instead, they're trusting in their own wisdom. That's why the writer in Proverbs says, lean not on your own understanding. And as a result of leaning on their own understanding, the unbeliever lives an empty, vain, purposeless life. Why? Due to the hardness of their heart. We see the reason for their unbelief. We see their reason as in found in verse 18. We saw that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. The unbeliever has a darkened understanding. It means they have a mental fog. They have a clouded or a darkened mind. Sin has caused them to lose their minds. Not that they have become wacko in their minds. It's just that they have lost their ability to think right. Their reasoning process has has become darkened. It's a spiritual and moral darkness. And and they're not able to see the truth. And we know that they're not able to see the truth because that happened in the Garden of Eden at the fall of man, when man sinned. They lost the ability to comprehend spiritual truth. So something is standing between them and the truth that they cannot see the truth. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, which says, Even if our gospel is veiled or blinded, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
The truth is veiled from them. Means they are blinders on. They could read scriptures every day. They could come and sit in the church Sunday after Sunday listening to the gospel being proclaimed. But nothing happens. Why? Because there is a veil over their eyes. It's like they have spiritual cataracts on. And we read in Romans chapter 1 verse 21. It says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their understanding and their foolish hearts were darkened. Those who reject the gospel message do so because we see that they love darkness. John chapter 3 verse 19 says they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So in addition to their love for their sin, their passion for sin, as a result of this, unbelievers reject the gospel. And the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 reads that, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. It says to keep them from seeing the truth. And the unbeliever will continue to be in a state of spiritual darkness unless and until something happens. Unless and until they are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will continue to have their spiritual blinders on. And that's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, Dearly beloved, if you and I are sitting here as saved individuals, it's because the Lord Jesus Christ in His sovereign time, through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, did His work in our lives, opened our eyes, that we are able to see the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, there would still be a mist over our eyes. We would not be able to see the truth unless God opens our eyes. Verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 4 continues to read that they are alienated from the life of God. So their thinking is futile. Why? Because they are darkened in their understanding. And as a result, the text says they are alienated from the life of God. They are separated from the life of God. They are removed from the life of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 We read that, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated. That means removed, isolated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promises. As a result, they have no hope, and they are without God in this world. The state of the unbeliever. They do not have eternal life. That's what it says, they are alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18 They're spiritually dead. Spiritual cadavers. They don't even know that they are alienated from the life of God because they can't even understand that. Now, it goes on to say there in verse 18 that the unbeliever is darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because... 
Because of what? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Why? Due to the hardness of their heart. What are they ignorant of? Well, they are ignorant of God himself. They are ignorant about God's revelation. They are ignorant about God's will. They are ignorant about his glory, about his attributes, about his sovereignty, his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, his mercy, his compassion, his grace. In short, beloved, they do not know God. They may know about God because there are some great professors in liberal universities teaching the New Testament. They may know about God, but they do not know God. And that's what we read in Romans one twenty one, as I read earlier. They knew God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, in their imagination, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They rejected God through creation, refused to glorify God, refused to give Him thanks. As a result, the Bible says the reasoning process became purposeless, futile, and their senseless hearts became darkened. As they willfully ignored God, This resulted in their judicial hardening. In other words, as they willfully gave themselves over to rejection of God, God gave them over. And so we read in Romans 1.23 and and Romans chapter 2 verse 1 that these people are without excuse. Uh, the, The blame for their ignorance falls directly on them. Because they are willfully ignorant, we read that God further blinded their heart, blinded their hearts, and hardened their hearts, blinded their eyes. Therefore, they cannot believe. If you read, uh, go through a passage in John chapter twelve, verses thirty-seven through forty. John twelve thirty-seven through forty, we read. Though he had done so many signs before them, they they still did not believe in him. I mean, they witnessed so many signs. They saw the work that Christ had done. 37 says they did not believe in him. They still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What was the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah? Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the harm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore... This is the reason they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, look at that. He says, he has blinded their eyes. Who is the he? God. God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes. As they willfully chose to be ignorant of God, God gave them over. This is what you want. This is what you get. You see, it's a downward spiral. It's out of control now. And as you come back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, the text says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the consequence. The consequence of living in their sin results in this. They have become callous. Meaning they become shameless. They become insensitive. Apathetic. I mean, they cease to feel the pain anymore. They have no fear of consequence. They are beyond shame. They are beyond regret. 
There's a text in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, reads this. They have become incapable of blushing. I mean, they have become so insensitive and so calloused that they are beyond blushing now. It reflects the moral apathy of the unbeliever. I mean, they have constantly rejected God that they have become like stone, hard. I mean, this is why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Because the more you harden your hearts, the more you become willfully ignorant of God, the more you are consciously searing your conscience. You get a conscience that is desensitized. I mean, your sensitivity is gone. You can no longer react. It's like your nerves are destroyed that you can't feel the gospel anymore. I mean, this is what happens when you live in the futility of your mind. When you live according to your own thinking, it results in a life that is cut off from God, from the truth of God's word. You have no standards, no morals, no absolute values to live by. I mean, if you have no absolute values to live by, who creates the rules? You create your own rules. You decide what the text says. You interpret everything. You interpret the first few pages of Genesis. You think it was not created by God. Evolutionary. You redefine marriage. You redefine holiness. You redefine the laws of God. You redefine the gospel. I mean, you, there's no end to it. It's a domino effect. It leads to degeneration. The next phrase in Ephesians 4, 19, says they have given themselves up to sensuality. Meaning they are past feeling now. They have given themselves to unblushing obscenity, or they have given themselves over to indecency. The one who is given to sensuality couldn't care less about a sin. They have become so obsessed with their sin, leading to sexual perversion and every kind of immoral choice, that the phrase reads, they have given themselves, meaning they have propelled themselves. Look at the word themselves. It's not anyone else. They themselves are propelling themselves to sensuality, over to immorality. Verse 19 continues to read that they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word greedy means covetousness, coveting. It's like the unbeliever is never satisfied. I must have what I want, and I will do what it needs to get what I want. It's rooted in self-centeredness, self-love. I must, you must have what you want, so no matter what in life needs to be pushed away, you will do it. Nothing should be allowed to interfere with my pleasure. I will trample, I will destroy anything that comes in the way. Because it's greediness, right? It's greediness that leads to that kind of impurity. 
The word impurity there is the, the Greek word aktharsia, which is a vile, abominable word, refers to dead bodies. You're thinking about that kind of abominable impurity. And, and, and the text goes on to read in verse 19 that they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That means they are made a business of their activity. They become so filthy and so wild that they have now turned that filth into a business. One commentator writes that as they made as these people have become so vile, so filthy that they have now turned it into a money-making industry. And we see that as well in pornography. And all the toys that you look around you uh, and the, the passions and the, the vile, degenerated society that we are in. Now, now you may say, well, Pastor, that's kind of one group of people. Not all believers are not so bad. Uh-huh, that's, not, that's going to the extreme. Well, let me tell you this. Once you've removed yourselves from the moral authority, from the absolute authority of God's word, then there's nothing to stop you. It's just a stone throw away. I mean, you just make choices based on your thinking, and your thinking is futile if you're an unbeliever. And the only restraining thing now you have is the common grace of God. And that's why we are protected, otherwise evil would have run rampant in our society today. Beloved, as an unbeliever, you do not have a mental compass. I mean, you just make choices based on your thinking, you live the way you want to live. That's who an unbeliever is. So you see in the condition, you saw the result, why they are an unbeliever, and then you see the consequences. And then let's come back to verse 17, because this is where Paul starts off. In verse 17, the first phrase, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord. And he says, you must no longer do what? Walk as the Gentiles do. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if you are born again, you are removed from this kind of a life. We are no longer people belonging to the kingdom of darkness. We no longer belong to the domain of darkness. We no longer belong to the domain of Satan. But instead, now you are in the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. So as, new, as believers, as born-again Christians, we cannot have an affinity with the people of the world. I mean, we cannot be at home in their presence. That's what it means. This is why First John says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. Now, this does not mean that you uproot yourselves from this world. It doesn't mean you sit on some hill up there as a monk and hum your way to glory. That's more what it says. It means you will be in the world, but don't let the world be in you. In other words, the boat will be in the water, but don't let the water get into the boat. If the water gets into the boat, what happens? You sink. 
The contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian is this, between light and darkness. We are a city set on a hill. We can have no fellowship with the deeds of darkness. The sad thing, and I say this with much grief, and tenderness, and compassion. The sad thing is there are lots of people today who call themselves Christians, but are false converts. And many churches have labeled these people as Christians, but they are walking around like pagans. They breed children out of wedlock. They continue to live that lifestyle. They continue to live in sexual sin. They commit adultery and they continue to commit adultery. They commit fornication and they continue to commit fornication. They continue to live with people to whom they are not legally married to. And they call themselves Christians. We have come out of that lifestyle. That means we were once like that. But you no longer continue living in that. Would you please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You see, what what Paul is saying is, well, you were one of these groups of people. You were once a deceiver. You were once a sexually immoral. You were once an idolater. You were once an adulterer. You were once practicing homosexuality. I mean, when I say practicing, it's a present continuous tense. It's a wrong tense to use. You were once homosexual. You were once a thief. You were once greedy. You were once drunkard. You were once a reviler. You were once a swindler. But that, that was your past. Such were some of you. You've been taken out of that, and now you're transferred into the kingdom of light. Stop being that anymore. Don't do that anymore. Why? Because you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Now, people love the doctrine of justification. And over the current years, the doctrine of justification has been, uh, has been propelled, and it's wonderful. But you don't stop at the doctrine of justification. There's a doctrine of sanctification. You were justified and you were also sanctified. Definitive sanctification that happens at the moment you come to salvation. You were set apart. And there's progressive sanctification that happens on a day-to-day basis to become more and more like Christ. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John MacArthur, he writes, You can't be an immoral, let me repeat, you can't be an immoral, ungodly person and just come along and accept Jesus and never change your lifestyle. They have been falsely taught that Christianity is just about loving Jesus. You don't have to change on the inside or on the outside. You just come to Jesus. John MacArthur continues, that is a lie right out of hell. That is diabolical, he says. The world has its own lifestyle and it's not ours. The first thing you need to do is repent. Nobody can come to Jesus unless and until he repents. Remember, it says repentance leading to salvation. You have to turn from your evil world and from your evil things. If you come to Christ thinking, all you had to do was believe, and then have to confess your sin and cut off from this evil world, you have missed the boat. I paraphrase that. John MacArthur continues, he says, If you don't make a conscious break from the system of this world, he questions if their salvation is real. And let me add to it. Such people are doing much damage to the church with their licentious lifestyle. I mean, you can't have Jesus who places no demands on you. If Jesus is to be a redeemer, he has to be your Lord as well. I wish such professing Christians would stop calling themselves Christians and would turn to the cross, repent of their sins, and seek forgiveness. Folks, if your life hasn't changed since you became a Christian, then you haven't been changed. An internal change is to result in an external change. Your life, your demeanor, your presence, your actions, your whole life, your behavior should suggest that you're marvelously and strangely deferred. I mean, different. Martin Lloyd-Jones states that in his commentary. And this is exactly what Christ died for us. Let me show you something. Would you please turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it says we are delivered from this evil age. That means if we are delivered from this evil age, we cannot and should not bear any resemblance to this evil age. Paul continues in that context of the false gospel being proclaimed. Look at Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You cannot be a man pleaser and say you're a Christian. 
Let me give you another reference in First Peter. Would you please turn with me to First Peter, chapter two, verses nine through twelve. First Peter chapter two, verses nine through twelve. It says, "But you are a chosen race." a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. See again that phrase, called you out of darkness and called you into his marvelous light. Look at verse 10. Once, once upon a time, once you were not a people, you were living without hope, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11 goes on to say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do what? To be in the world and to act like the world? No, it says to abstain. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that means the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak, Against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you please continue to turn to a couple of pages down, chapter 4, First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It's important we look at the entire text and the whole of New Testament scriptures. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That means think like Christ. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Rested. Removed himself. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. No longer for human passions. But for the will of God. And then he goes on to say in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You see what the Gentiles want to do? They want to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So you see, we are to turn from and turn to. Do not be like the Gentiles. That's why Paul states in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Get out of that place. Turn from that place and turn to. So let's look at what we are supposed to turn to. We see that in chapter 4 verses 20 through 24. This is kind of the review and we kind of now come to the text. And I have four headings for you in the text in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Do you know Christ personally? Verses 20 and 21. Have you put off the old man? Verse 22. Have you... Being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 23. And have you put on the new man? Verse 24. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Do you know Christ personally? It says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him. And were taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus. 
We begin verse 20 with the conjunction, but. It's an emphatic contrast with what went before in verse 19. He says, but. That means he's contrasting your present with your past. He says the born again person is different from the way he used to live his life. He says that's not the way you learned Christ. The marvelous experience you've had, you've come to have, the knowledge of Christ is what is given to you by Christ. The unbeliever is darkened in understanding. But you have understanding. The unbeliever had a mind that was futile. But now you have God's word. The emphasis upon knowledge. The emphasis upon learning and upon understanding. This is what salvation is all about. It's a change of mind. Look at what verse 20 says. That is not how you learned Christ. This is how one comes to salvation. You come to a knowledge of the truth. The believer, as the eye opened, and when their eyes are opened, they come to the knowledge of the truth. They begin to see the value of the gospel. They begin to see that Christ came down. He lived a man, lived as a man. He, he, he did everything right under the law. He went to the cross, and he atoned for us upon the cross. He became a ransom for upon the cross. And the believer begins to see this and understand it. It's not just knowing the factual facts. I grew up in a Christian home. I, I always say this. I started going to church nine months before I was born. I mean, I attended everything. I attended all the entire enchilada, the Sunday school, the VBS, you name it. I was, I'm a Sunday school graduate. I had a 4.0 as a Sunday school graduate. But my heart was far removed from Christ. It was only later in my life that John chapter 17, verse 3 made sense. And this is John chapter 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life. That you may know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It was when I knew Christ personally that my life was transformed. I knew the Bible stories. I knew memory verses. But I did not know Christ. And this is only by the grace of God in a sovereign time. He opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel. Regenerated me. And that's when I personally learned Christ. And Paul continues in verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The first phrase in verse 21 reads, assuming you've heard about him. The original Greek reads, assuming you heard him. The about is missing in the original Greek. The Ephesians did not hear Christ in person, but they had heard about him in the gospel. Paul had preached the gospel in Ephesians. So the Ephesians heard about the gospel. They heard about Christ. But here, the sense is, when you hear the message of salvation, when you hear the gospel, it is as if you're hearing, as if you're listening to the living Christ. 
Christianity is not about learning about a dead man. Christianity is about learning about a living person who is Christ the Messiah, God, seated at the right hand of God. That's what verse 21 says. It says, assuming that you heard him in the gospel, in the scripture being proclaimed, in the words being proclaimed, in the Bible studies that you've attended, you heard him. He goes on to say, you were taught in him. Verse 21. And were taught in him. It's an ongoing instruction that happens after you become a Christian. It's not just you became a Christian, you raised your hand, you signed on the dotted line, and then you sit at home and you become an invisible Christian. No, it becomes a part of your life. Teaching is the heart, is at the heart of your Christian life. And that's why you come to church. You find yourself a local body where the word of God is being proclaimed in and out. I mean, if you go to a church where you're just being entertained, where they just throw a few verses on the screen, and you leave the church, your Christianity will remain till the point you get out of the parking lot. That's it. You find a church where the word of God is being proclaimed. And you find avenues to study God's word. This is why we make it so possible in this church. This is why teaching the word of God is primary in this church. If you open up your bulletin, the first line on the bulletin says, We teach the Bible because... You've not read that, right? Lives depend on it. Our lives depend on it. And this aspect is neglected in many churches. People come to church Sunday after Sunday to be fed a lean diet of God's word. This is why you need to find a church where you can get a seven course meal. Bible centered preaching. We follow the same system when it comes to learning the Bible. You know, you, you go into a fast food place and you eat a double-double cheeseburger, and then you order what? A Diet Coke. <laughs> Think about this. People are living in this world filled with all the junk things that you see on television and all the junk that you see in the evil world that's throwing at you, the barrage of evil that's being thrown at you, and you need solid high-calorie diet. And you do the same thing that you would do at a fast food. Lean diet, as in a diet coke. You need solid food. You need filet mignon. You need the word of God to sustain you through the week. It's sad that many believers don't even know the doctrines of the Bible. I mean, many believers are not even aware about many stories in the Bible. They're malnourished when it comes to the Word of God. I mean, they know everything else about everything else, but when it comes to the Word of God, they, they are limited. This is the teaching responsibility of the church. It's a responsibility of leaders in the church. Pastors and elders, and we saw that in Ephesians, that is the pastors and elders were given the task of equipping the believers so that you in turn could go and carry out the work of the ministry. This is why you need to appoint a pastor, you need to appoint elders in the church who are able 
Because this is the only qualification that separates an elder from all of the people, from deacons. They should be able to teach God's word. You will do much damage to the church if you appoint a pastor or if you appoint an elder who's not able to teach. You will do much damage to the church. And if the church has a low view of the office of the elder, guess what's going to happen? Heresies will creep in and you won't even know it. You won't even know it. Beloved, doctrine determines the direction of our behavior. So you need to be taught. Verse 22, 21 continues, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Christ is the object. He is the spear of our teaching. We teach Christ crucified. Everything we do here in this church is to teach Christ who came into this world, who died for us, who satisfied the wrath of God against us, paid for our sins, hung on the cross, and exchanged our sins upon him, and in turn gives us his righteousness. That's what we are taught. It's in the sphere of Christ. It's centered on Christ. It's about our union in Christ. It's about being in Christ. And by the way, I wanted to show you something here. Look at verse 21 again. It says, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul is used to saying Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. But here, uniquely in the book of Ephesians, for the only time, he uses the word Jesus. He's referring to the historical Christ, the real person. The truth is not subjective truth, but truth is found in a person. The person who shows his hands, and you can see see the nails driven through those hands. The Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The Jesus who died, and the Jesus Christ who rose again from the dead on the third day, and he went up into heaven, and people saw him going up into heaven. And the angel said, he is going to come back the way he went up. And we are waiting for his arrival. And as Paul said, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's the historical Jesus that Paul is talking about. As the truth is in Jesus. The next point we're going to look at, the next heading is, have you put off the old man? Found in verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The old man refers to who we were before we were saved. Before we were saved, we were ruled by evil desires and practices, our former manner of life. This is what we read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You have put off. That means it's a thing of the past. The old man is dead. The old self is dead. 
The person you were before salvation is dead. The unregenerate person is dead. The old Adamic nature is dead. It's a completed reality. That's the miracle of salvation. That's why last week when we were doing the baptism, we said as you go into the waters, you were dead. Now you're coming up to newness of life. The old man is dead. But at the moment of justification, there's a definitive sanctification, meaning you're now set apart as holy. You now become a new person. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. You see that? We no longer have our old self. Some people say, well, you have the old man and the new man together. You know, it's like the, the uh, black dog and a white dog fighting with each other. No, our old self was dead. It was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. You see, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It's not that sin doesn't exist in them anymore. The power of sin over us is broken. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So a believer can go on living his life. He is no longer going to live his life in sin because we are dead to sin. Because the old man is dead. The old man is gone. But sin is still a reality in this world. This is why one person said, it's not that you won't sin, it's not that you can't sin, it is you don't have to sin. Because the power of sin over you is broken. The dominion of sin over you is broken. We know that sin is a reality because as you read 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. So yes, there is sin in this world. We still have the flesh in us, which has got the remnant of sin in us. But the thing is, as a believer, as you put off the old man, you become extra sensitive to sin in this world. You will desire holiness. You will desire obedience. Your aspirations, your longing will be towards righteousness. So the question I ask you this morning, beloved, is have you put off your old self? That happens at salvation. So in other words, are you saved? Do you just know Christ or do you know Him personally? And if you have been saved, if you are saved, the old man is put off. It was crucified at the cross. If not, today is the day of salvation. Cry out to Him. And He will save you. Based on the promise of God, if you cry out to Him, He will save you. Do you know Him personally? The next point, the next heading is, are you renewed in the spirit of your mind? Verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That means when you and I become believers, God gives us a mind that can be renewed. It means it's, it's a passive. Somebody outside is doing it. 
And it's in the present tense, meaning this renewing is happening, it's an ongoing process, it's done by God in an ongoing process. Yes, God gives us a mind that can be renewed, it's an ongoing renewal, but keep in mind that you and I need to be actively involved in the renewing process. It's not just sitting away and saying, well, God, renew my mind, I'm a Christian now, it doesn't happen like that. That's why the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So how are you renewing your mind? Yes, He has given you a mind that can be renewed. How are you renewing your mind? The only way you can renew your mind is through the Word of God, through the study of God's Word, and through prayer. Isn't that what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Are you renewing your mind? 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scriptures God breathed profitable for doctorate, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be approved unto all good works. It's God's word that helps you renew your mind. This is why in this church, we don't play around with your emotions. We don't give you some sob stories. We don't, we don't uh, uh, make things like dim the lights and make you hold hands and sing Kumbaya five times. We don't create a dramatic setting to appeal to your emotions. Because if we do that, your salvation will only last till you get out of the parking lot. We are appealing to your minds because salvation is a change of mind. And the scriptures can renew your mind. Now don't get me wrong. I mean, spiritual decisions has got to do with your emotions as well. But what is going to affect your emotions is the word of God. As the word of God is read and as you understand the gospel, it will stir your emotions and it stirs your emotions to the point that you don't want to obey God. The last heading, seen in verse 24. And to put on the new man, the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The new man is a regenerated person, created in Christ Jesus. It's a redeemed self. It's the new self. So Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, act like a Christian. If you're a Christian, dress like a Christian. It's not that you have a specific style to be, you know, dressed like a Christian. No, it means act like one. Don't impersonate a Christian. I mean, if you are a Christian, walk like one. Don't act like you're a Christian if you're not. Not going to get you anywhere. That means you have to put on the clothes of the new man. Would you please turn with me to Colossians? Chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. But now, you must put them all away. What? Anger, wrath, malice, 
slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing why you have put up the old self. When did that happen? At salvation. It was. It has died, died with Christ, died with its practices. And look at verse 10, and have put on the new man, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Where does the knowledge come from? The knowledge from God's word. Knowledge after what? After the image of its creator, like God. And then he goes on into verse 12 to to list the things we are to put on. So you put off those things and instead you want to put on something. Look at what you are to put on. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. By the way, you see why he calls you holy? Because when Christ looks at you, he sees you at what? As holy, definitive sanctification, right? The moment you're justified, you are Christ-like. God looks at you, he sees Christ in you. He says, well, pastor, that's far from what I am actually. Yeah, that is true. But we are being shaped every day, transformed every day to be more and more like Christ. And one day when we see Christ, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3. So verse 12 says, put on holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So here's what we need to put on. This is what Paul said when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Yet it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what putting on means. Putting on Christ-likeness. God is the pattern of the new man. Christ is the pattern of the new man. And folks... It's a lifelong process. It's not something that happened and then there you are. While we live in this world, we continue to grow in our holiness, in our righteousness. We reflect the righteousness and the holiness of the truth of Christ. This is what is called progressive transformation. Theologically progressive sanctification putting on. As one preacher said, I ain't what I want to be and I ain't what I'm going to be, but praise God, I ain't what I used to be. Father, we thank you for this glorious gospel, the gospel that teaches us to live transformed lives, obedient lives, not in order to gain brownie points, But because we have been accepted by the beloved, our lives reflect an obedient life because we love you and we want to live for you all the days of our life. Thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.